Hello, hello, happy Sabbath. Thank you for joining us today for worship. We're glad you're here uh, in person. I just want to give a special shout out also to anyone that's watching live. I know Arizona Church, you're joining us for live worship today. We thank you for joining us all the way in Arizona, and we're glad you could join us on this Sabbath for our worship. Um, if you're new or you're visiting for the first time this week, we're currently concluding a five-week-long series called How to Study the Bible this week. Um, to give a quick recap to anyone that maybe wasn't here or hasn't been able to keep up or weren't able to catch um, our sermons online, we started this, this series on how to study the Bible by beginning by talking about any possible hang-ups you might have. And Pastor Chris and I, as we're coming up with this sermon, we're talking and, and we realized that for, for some people, depending on where you're at, you could see a series title like How to Study the Bible and you could be a little not excited, to say the least. You can be like, ah, I don't know if I want to sit through, you know, who knows how long this series is going to be about how to study the Bible. And in part one, we talked about potential hang-ups that you might have for not wanting to study the Bible. Obviously, we don't need to do a sermon about why we should study the Bible. Everyone here pretty much came in knowing, yes, I know I should study the Bible, but here are my hang-ups. And the third we talked about are sometimes we can find the Bible to be confusing boring or irrelevant. And in, the, in part one of our series, we talked about uh, one example in the Bible, the story of David and Bathsheba, that really kind of breaks down any of those hang-ups um, as far as its irrelevance or boring or difficult to understand. And the week after, Pastor Chris jumped in, and he talked about a very important aspect about the Bible that you need to know before you start delving into it, and it's really the overarching storyline of the Bible. A word that he used was metaverse, or the meta-narrative of the Bible. What is the Bible really about? If you have to summarize the Bible in like a spark note, two sentence, what am I reading here? And while there are several different angles you can look at it from, Pastor Chris shared that really the Bible is about God bringing heaven and earth together, where if you look at the very beginning of the Bible, heaven is on earth in the Garden of Eden. At the very end of the Bible, heaven and earth are reunited again in a new earth and a new creation, and everything in between is God working towards that goal in the temple and the tabernacle and Jesus and the sanctuary and all those means. And the next week, we answered a very fundamental question on why should you actually study the Bible? In other words, what is the purpose of Bible study? And we talked about two reasons that maybe you have read the Bible, the purposes that you may have had the Bible um, incorrectly, such as reading the Bible merely for information, like a textbook, or reading the Bible in the context of confirming a bias that you already had. And we talked about the dangers and why you shouldn't read the Bible in those contexts. And we ended that sermon by talking about the real reason you should study the Bible. The only correct reason to truly study Scripture is to allow the words of the Bible, the message and the truth of Scripture, to transform your life. The key word of that message was, how can we have the Bible allow the Bible to transform us, to, to shine a light into our hearts and tell us what needs to not be there? And last week, we brought like arguably the most important aspect of the series, um, the one that really kept this from being a clickbaity series. And we talked about how to actually study the Bible. We talked about why, the overarching story, why you might not. And last week, we finally got around to how we should actually study the Bible. And Pastor Chris did a five-step kind of like handles. We talked about how you should prepare, read, reflect, respond, and then rest. And that's kind of a basic framework how you can study the Bible on your own, in the quiet of your house, by yourself, with you, the Bible, and God. And again, if you hear last week, Pastor Chris kind of teed up this series finale by talking about how this week it would be the most relevant. And you can maybe be asking yourself at this point, 
do we need a fifth part? Like, what is the purpose of having one more part? We know how to study the Bible. We talked about all this other stuff. Why are you still here? Why are we still on this series? I'd rather go to something else. Um, but Pastor Chris um, teed off the series, uh, the series finales uh, last week by talking about how this message would be the most relevant aspect of the series. And I would say I do agree with him. The key word and the main theme that we're going to be talking about in this series finale um, is a word that we use pretty often here at Rock Fellowship. If you've been here before, um, you've probably heard this several times said into a mic on the stage or in crossing. And we talk about this a lot in the context of what our church is about. And the key concept that we're talking about today is the word community. How to study the Bible within the context of community. And I think, and I would argue, that it's vitally important that we end this series by looking at not why you should study the Bible, but why it's necessary that you study the Bible, that you must study the Bible in the context of community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you again for this privilege we can come here and, and share the word and share your word uh, with our church today, Father, Lord. I ask that during this time, as we enter into your word, that everything I say, Lord, all my, anything that's covered up by my sin, you put to the side and, and let it not get in the way of your message, Father, Lord, and that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Father. If there's anyone listening to this, whether here in Portland or online that has a heart and heart or ears that are blocked, Father, I ask that you do what only you can do and soften and change hearts, Lord, for whoever needs to hear this message. We thank you for who you are and what you've done and this rest you've given us on this day. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you to picture yourself or picture somebody studying the Bible, just close your eyes, take a second. Picture somebody studying the Bible, doing a Bible study, doing a devotional, whatever word you want to use. What image comes to mind? For most of us, it's probably something along these lines. You're, you're alone, you're by yourself, you're in your bedroom, there's a desk in your bedroom, or if you have a room in your, in your house that's like a study or an office room, you're there, you're by yourself, it's quiet, it's you, it's probably in the morning, you have a cup of coffee or some tea, it's you, the Bible, God, and silence. I think for a lot of us, this is kind of like the ideal way. If I were to study the Bible, if I could study the Bible, that's the image I want. I want to be alone, no distractions. If you have kids or family, they're not all there. It's just you, God, and the Word. Now, if I were to ask you uh, to picture the last time you had a group study session, right? A group session where you're in school and you and your friends got together to study for a test or a final, um, what comes to mind for you then? Probably a much, a much different image. Um, when I was in high school, um, we had the unique privilege of, we had um, California State University of Fullerton. Our Cal uh, State University was right across the street from our high school. And so my junior year, what my friends and I discovered that you could do was we would leave school. So after school, we wouldn't get picked up by our parents. And instead, what we would tell them is that we were going to study in the library which was true, and we would go and we would go across the street to Cal State Fullerton, we'd go in their food cart, in their food court area, we'd get Panda Express and pizza, we'd get dinner, and you would head into the library. And the cool thing about this library, like most libraries um, at the college level, is that you could rent or borrow like a study room, and it was usually a pretty large room with a table in there and glass windows, where you technically, you had to be a student there, where you could rent out a room to study with your friends, because otherwise the library was a quiet area. And we realized pretty early on that nobody ever actually checks. And if you, as long as you walk in with a group and you look like you're studying, no one's going to kick you out. And I don't know if it says something about the students there at the library that no one ever checked out these rooms. But pretty much every day after school, for the better part of a semester, we'd go across the street and we'd study in this room. We'd study in this room, a group of six to ten of us. 
And when I say, this is like one of my favorite memories in high school. My friends and I would go, and again, you can be fairly loud in there, it's a little bit separate. And we would essentially just hang out for like three to four hours. And it was like so much fun. And basically what you did is you were there and we would hang out, especially if you had a test. We would tell ourselves time and time again, hey guys, we have to actually study today. Dude, we have a final tomorrow, we can't not study. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. And we'd be in there and for about 10 minutes, You'd be quiet, you'd hear just scribbling or tapping on a keyboard, and then someone would chuckle and be like, dude, 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 look at this video. And the next three hours just went out the door. There was a time we were in there for two and a half hours, we were trying to learn the lyrics of like a rap song. And we spent there two and we had a test the next day. And without fail, every single time, if you actually wanted to study, one of two things happened. Either you would leave the room and be like, guys, today I actually have to study, and they would leave and go into the library, to the quiet zone, and actually study, and we would know, oh shoot, that kid, he's not, he doesn't have a good grade in the class, he actually needs to do well on this test. Or what you would do, that most of us would do, um, once it hit around 8, 9, 10 p.m., you would stand up and you would sigh and say, all right guys, I have to go home and actually study for this test, I'll see you guys tomorrow. And your parents would come and pick you up. And time and time again, uh, we, we never actually studied in that room. And time, you know, we weren't the most studious bunch by far, and we weren't the ones setting the curve on any of the tests. But we had so, so, so much fun, but I can guarantee you, little to no studying ever happened in that setting. Um, and maybe for you guys, when I talk about this concept of, of Bible study, studying the Bible in a community, what comes to mind is something along those lines. A chaotic group where people are together and just talking, and, but not a whole lot of studying and academic discoveries happening. And maybe for you, that kind of turns you off. And you're like James Bond, you say, you know what, I work better alone. And I prefer to study the Bible in the quiet of my own room or my study or my office, where it's just me and God. And don't get me wrong, there is a time and place for that. Or maybe you're just... I'm an introvert. I don't like doing that with other people. I get what you're saying, but I would much rather prefer to study the Bible on my own. I never really study well in groups. I figure this is more of a me, myself, and God kind of thing. And again, if it does have a, a negative connotation for you, you may also be someone that brings up Pastor Chris's sermon from last week, right? Hey, I was here last week for the sermon, and really this whole concept of prepare, read, reflect, respond, and rest, it kind of sounded like he wanted you to do it on, on your own. And this is all true. I'm not saying that there isn't a time and place for you to study the Bible on your own. And again, most of you probably do most of your Bible study on your own, whether it's a morning devotion or some time with God. And I want to clarify, I'm not saying that there isn't a time and place to study the Bible on your own. However, for this final part of this series, now that we know how to study the Bible on your own, I want to make the case that when you study the Bible, it's actually in your best interest to do so in the context of community. Actually, I would go further, and I want to make the case that when you study the Bible, it is necessary, and you must study the Bible within the context of community. And I'm going to list two big reasons why this is the case, and why you're protecting yourself from certain things when you look at the Bible within the context of other people. And the first is a fairly practical, pragmatic reason. And it's because studying the Bible in community can help correct inaccurate interpretations of Scripture. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in an immigrant household, meaning my family emigrated to the United States from South Korea when I was about four years old. Meaning, uh, when, I, when I talked to my parents, it's primarily in Korean, um, which has been good because I've been able to hold on to my Korean for much longer. The downside of that is um, I, especially growing up in America and learning about American culture and how to speak the language, there were certain words that were embedded in my mind um, based off how my mother pronounced them which is a terrible thing, given that, you know, we're like learning English together. 
And for the longest time, and there's, there are two words in particular that come to mind where I didn't realize I was pronouncing it incorrectly until I got to high school. And my teenage friends told me, dude, that's not how you say that word. And the first word, they both have, a, have sort of a connection. Uh, when I was younger, we would go to a certain establishment, a certain eatery establishment, in which instead of ordering um, with a waiter or a waitress, you would pay a one-time fee to enter, and then there was basically an unlimited amount of food spread out. Okay, and you're, 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 you're picturing where this is going. And you know what this establishment is called. Um, and the place we would go uh, was a place that served primarily like American food, like fried chicken, there's a carving station, mashed potatoes. Um, and it started with the phrase, hometown. Hometown, insert word here. And for the longest time, I did not realize I was pronouncing this word incorrectly until I got to high school. And my friends and I went to a hometown restaurant, right? And we went, and I was like, dude, it's been a minute since I've been to hometown buffet. And they're like, what did you just say? And it was weird because I didn't say it in a tone that was joking. I was saying it because I was starving and I was excited to eat there. And the first one kind of slid. And then as we walked in, I was like, dang, I'm so excited. Oh, this is the smell of hometown buffet. And they're like, what did you just say? And they're like, dude, you know that's not how you pronounce it. I was like, hometown? I'm pretty sure it's, that's how you pronounce hometown. And they're like, say the next word again. I was like, buffet? That's how you, this is a buffet. No, it's like not a restaurant. It's a buffet where you can go and get all your food, like church potluck. And then they just died laughing for about 30 seconds. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place where everyone is laughing but you. And then you get the realization, oh, they're laughing at me. And I realized, and they told me for the first time in my life, that it's not pronounced buffet, it's buffet. And it like, I like almost got mad at my mom. I was like, how could you do this to me, mother? Right, I am in high school now, and I'm in like, I'm taking like an honors English class, and I'm walking around like, I don't know how to speak this language. And the second one came at a similar establishment. It was also a buffet setting. Um, and here, it's known as Sweet Tomato, where I grew up, it was known as um, Sue Plantation. Again, we went there very often growing up. And if you go to this establishment, which unfortunately, I believe, no longer exists, um, there's a section, like a baked goods section, where you can go and they have muffins and cupcakes and whatnot, uh, muffins and, and uh, cornbread and whatnot. And you go there, and there's a certain bread. It's thick, it's chewy, it's airy. It's like, it kind of looks like pizza or garlic, but it's not really. It's like an Italian bread. So it's an F and ends with an A. Um, and you may know this as focaccia bread or focaccia bread. Um, I, unfortunately for me, in Korean, this is pronounced pokachia. And for the longest, until I was in high school, and I, I was 15 years old when my friends and I went to Sioux Plantation or Sweet Tomato, I was like, dude, the focaccia today is busting. It's so good. And they're like, what? Everyone stopped. Like, what did you just say? I was like, oh, do you guys call it pizza bread? No, oh, no, I heard it's actually pronounced focaccia. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's really, really good. And again, for the most part, I grew up just calling it pizza bread or garlic bread. But this wasn't a moment where I wanted to like, Flex, like, yeah, dude, it's like an Italian word, and this is how you pronounce it. And I made a complete fool of myself in front of all my friends, and they brought up hometown buffet again. And it was a terrible, terrible experience. Now, this is like a, an example of a fairly harmless, kind of silly example. Um, but at the core of this, of this study of scripture is that, um, at a core, the study of scripture in community has its benefits and how it creates almost like guardrails. And I will tell you for a fact that if I just remained with my family and never went to those establishments with friends, I would be before you today not using this as an illustration because I would still be saying those words, right? But because I brought those up in the context of my friends that spoke proper English, some of these establishments, I was able to understand 
that's not how you say those words. That's incorrect. And something that was really just a family thing, so my sister and I were kind of in the same boat, something that was really just a family thing became outed and I realized it was an incorrect pronunciation of certain words. And this is important because we mentioned earlier in the series that the Bible can very easily be used to confirm a previous bias that you have. And again, this is very important. We talked about previously that information and confirmation are two reasons, are two dangerous ways to view the purpose of studying the Bible. Again, the Bible is large enough and covers thousands of years and, and a wide enough uh, a variety of topics that it can be used to justify pretty much any previous bias that you may have. And again, uh, when we use the Bible to fuel our own agendas, it really sort of to use kind of a strong word, it really sort of perverts the whole process and, and the reasoning behind studying scripture. And I would argue that whenever someone twists the Bible to support their own symbol agenda, the church and the reputation of Jesus always, always suffers. And this is so easy to do when you study the Bible on your own. And there are probably so many times where you're studying something or you view something in an insular environment with just you, just your friends, just your family, and you came to a certain conclusion based on the context you were in, but when you bring that to a wider group, that may or may not have been wrong, whether it's pronouncing a certain food or a theological take you have. And you can see how easy this is to do when you look at the history of our church. And there are so many things, so many terrible things that have been done and justified through scripture, whether it's the tortures of the Spanish Inquisition, whether it's the Crusades, where people went to war and killed other people because they twisted scripture in such a way where war like this was justified, or slavery in America, which was justified in a lot of ways through scripture, where people said, you know what, it's like mentioned in the Bible, it must be okay. And those are just three small examples of many, many ways that you can twist scripture to fit your own sinful agendas because of just a vast variety of things that it talks about in different contexts and cultures. And a side note, um, a community is also one of the reasons that we know that the Bible is reliable, or one of the reasons. Um, one of the reasons I think the Bible has some legitimacy is that this wasn't a book that was created by some man in a cave, where he went in a cave and he compiled all these books and all these writings and walked out one day and said, all right, guys, this is the book. If you look at kind of how this, the Bible as we know it, or the canon is what we call it, came to be, the first four books of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there were other accounts of Jesus, but by the time it came to actually compiling the Bible, the whole church community almost unanimously realized, yeah, these four books, these are the most reliable, the most spirit-filled Bibles, uh, spirit-filled accounts of Jesus' life. Let's make sure these are the four that are included. And that's why you don't see something like the Gospel of Thomas or other books where people in the church decided, you know what, that's not so much the case. This wasn't just some book that one person on their own came up with. A community of believers came together and acknowledged, yeah, this is legit. It wasn't the work of one man in a corner by himself or a scholar that came out with a mysterious book. This stuff was out. These letters, these gospels, these accounts had been around for a while before the actual B-I-B-L-E that we know it came to be. And when it came time to compile them, it was the community that came together and realized the legitimacy of these. Again, just another example of how the study of Bible, uh, the study of, of the Bible in community is important as it protects us and helps to correct inaccurate interpretations of Scripture. It essentially sets guardrails for us that you may have a wild take, but when you bring it into the context of community, they can help correct that if need be. The second reason, the last reason, um, it's important to study the Bible in community is it because, it's because it helps us to study the Bible for the correct reason. 
And again, if you remember two weeks ago, Pastor Chris mentioned, the only reason we should be studying the Bible, the main reason we should study Scripture is that we should allow it to enter into our lives and transform us, to shine a light into our hearts, to, 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 to air out our dirty laundry and realize the things in our lives that shouldn't be there and then allow the truths of Scripture to change our lives. And I want to take a turn us to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 21. And this is a passage that maybe you've heard about before. I mean, my Bible is titled, Paul Confronts Peter. It's titled, Paul Confronts Peter. But before we go into the actual message, I want to set a little bit of context for what's happening here. Um, after Jesus died, the church has had this explosive amount of growth. Or if you remember the story at Pentecost, all the apostles were in a room, and the Holy Spirit came, and tongues of fire showed up on people's faces. Peter preached a fire sermon, an amazing sermon, and thousands of people were converted and baptized. And following that, the church really started to pick up steam. And one of the main conflicts and points of tension that the church kind of struggled with, especially the first century Christian church, was who is invited into this community of the church, right? Who should we include? Who is this message of the gospel for? And a tough pill that the church had to swallow was, especially because it started with a group of Jewish apostles, was this message, the message of Jesus and his salvation and what he's done should be for everyone, which meant Gentiles, non-Jewish people, must be invited to be a part of this movement. And again, you, you hear this as a church in, in 2022, and you're like, of course, like the message of God is for everyone. And in fact, we've gone totally other end of the spectrum where we encourage this. We have evangelism and mission trips. We try to get the gospel to as many different cultures and groups as possible. But in the early church, this was a really tough pill for them to swallow, and it caused a lot of tension within the church. Should we allow these people? Okay, once we allow these people to join the church, what are the requirements? What should we have them do? They didn't grow up Jewish. What should we have them do? And a really big point was like the idea of circumcision, which in Jewish culture was held huge significance for the covenant. And it came down to like, all right, if a Gentile man joins the church as an adult, do we have to make him circumcised? Should we circumcise them? And you can see why that would be a huge turnoff for a lot of people joining the church. If you're like, all right, you get baptized, you join the church, and like, welcome. Join the church. All right, before we actually add you as a membership, we need to do one quick minor surgery, real quick before you join. And you can see why there's like a huge hurdle for a lot of people. And what they talked about was one, one aspect that Paul really defended during this era was we should make it as easy as possible and we should not have to make them into Jews before they become Christians. And this is where we get the story of Galatians chapter 2. Just before this, um, the church kind of decided that Paul would be the point person to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. They're like, you know what, this seems to be your calling, and that's why Paul has all these missionary uh, trips where he travels all around the Mediterranean basin, bringing the message of God to non-Jewish people, to people that don't have a Jewish background, that didn't grow up reading and memorizing the Torah. On the other side of the spectrum, there's a church in Jerusalem that was predominantly occupied by Jewish people, people with Jewish backgrounds, and this was led by Peter James and John. James being um, the, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. And these three guys were like sort of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, the church that was predominantly occupied by Jewish people. Again, keeping in mind the kind of tension that was happening with these new Gentiles joining into the church. And so Paul is at a church in Antioch that's pri primarily occupied by a Gentile population. So it's a church where most of his membership is, is with Gentiles, so non-Jewish backgrounds. And Peter, who again spends most of his time in the church in Jerusalem, is visiting the church in Antioch. And he's there. And again, just previous to this, Peter had received a, a vision from God. And you may have recalled this um, in the book, uh, in the Bible, where um, he has a vision of unclean animals coming down from heaven. And basically, God, through that vision, tells Peter, Peter, get your act together. The Gentiles need to hear about me. And after that, he goes to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius is one of like the first Gentiles, one of the first Gentiles 
to enter into the church. So again, Peter has a bit of background in working with, um, with Gentiles, and again, he was a little apprehensive about this. But now, he's with Paul at a church in Antioch, surrounded by Gentiles, and he's hanging out. They're eating together, they're doing church together, they're fellowshipping together. Until one day, a group of, of Jewish men from the church in Jerusalem come up. Again, the Bible describes them as, as friends of James. Again, James is probably the most influential leader at the church in Jerusalem at the time. And once these guys come up from Jerusalem, Peter stops eating with the Gentiles, right? He looks around and says, oh, he sees the people from Jerusalem come up, he sees the friends of James, and all of a sudden, Paul notices, hey, Peter, I notice you're not eating with the Gentiles anymore. And he, he puts two and two together, and it must be that this group of, uh, of Jews from Jerusalem came up, and now he feels intimidated, right? All of a sudden, he's not standing by what he knows to be true, and it was causing division within the church in Antioch, because again, Peter is a really big name in the church, one of the, the face of the franchise, and they see him stopping to eat with the Gentiles. And again, now the other Jews are like, oh, Peter isn't eating with the Gentiles. Should we stop eating? And it says that even Barnabas, um, someone that was in the tutelage of, uh, again, someone that was in the church, a Jew, realized maybe I should stop eating too. And Paul noticed that this was creating kind of a problem in the church where because of Peter's actions, because he stopped eating and he started going backtracking, um, the church was starting to be split because of this tension brought up with the community from Jerusalem coming up. And so here, here's what Paul does, okay? And keeping in mind, there's a bit of tension here and there's a bit of history, but this is arguably, in my opinion, this exchange that Peter and Paul have is arguably one of the most influential moments in the early church because this kind of determines, all right, what are you going to do, right? You say that Gentiles are welcome. Are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Are you going to actually walk the walk or are you just going to say that they're included, but then not really include them, where you don't eat with them and you kind of shun them? And in this moment, Paul sees the situation. He sees the potential danger that is going to happen. He sees that even though Peter is, you know, a very influential person in the church, he's a big name, he's doing something incorrect. He's doing something that's going to harm the church. He's doing something that goes against the teachings of Scripture. Now we get to Galatians chapter 2. Again, he's taking steps back, and this is what he says. In verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, this is Paul talking about what Peter and the rest of the Jews that were following Peter were doing. When I saw that they, these Jews, were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish tradition? In other words, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Why are you being such a hypocrite in this moment? Peter, I saw you. You were just eating with these guys before the people from Jerusalem came up. Why are you backtracking now? Are you that scared of these people? Are you that intimidated by your friends in Jerusalem? Do you consider them to be like in a higher position? Why are you suddenly excluding these people from our church? Remember, we decided we were going to allow Gentiles into our church. We decided that they are, should be privy to the knowledge of Jesus and the gospel. Why are you now backtracking and excluding this group? And I think that, that in this exchange where basically Paul calls them out, we don't know exactly what happened down the road, but basically Paul calls them out and basically goes into this sermon, right? Goes into this long sermon teaching moment about the truth and, and how the only thing that can really save you is not your heritage, not what you do, but faith in who God is. That's the only thing that matters when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. You notice that in this moment, I think the most impressive part of this exchange, and the reason it's so important, 
is that Peter chooses to be taught and humbled in this moment. If you realize, if you look at kind of the context of who Peter is and who Paul is, Peter is like established. He was like by Jesus' side. He was the apostle that preached right after Pentecost. People know him. He's the face of the franchise. He's a big name. Paul has done many things, but he's, you know, newer. He wasn't with Jesus. He has a sketchy past. He's someone that used to be against the church. He harmed the church. I'm sure there are still people in the church that were a little bit wary when he first started entering the church. There is definitely, like, if you want to call it a hierarchy, there kind of is a hierarchy here, where Peter is kind of here, face of the franchise, been with Jesus, an OG apostle, and Paul is like, I mean, he's new, he's up and coming, but kind of has a sketchy past. He did some things that, that we don't love. Yet in that moment, Instead of Peter pulling rank or puffing his chest, he's quiet, and he allows himself to be humbled by by Paul in front of the church. And I would argue that had Peter not done that, had he fought back, had he pushed back, had he ousted Paul, the church very well could have regressed back into a Jewish-only club where only Jews got together and Gentiles were not really welcome to the church. And if that were the case, and again, this is all kind of speculation, none of us would be a part of the church in the gospel message today because there's a bunch of Gentiles in this room, myself included, right? But again, it's so, and this is why I think this is one of the most important parts of, of church history, this moment, this exchange, where Peter, instead of flexing his muscles and punching back and shoving Paul down and asking him, who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? He allows Paul to speak biblical truth into his life and to correct him, albeit in front of the whole church, on something that he did incorrectly. I'm sure many of us can relate to this, but it's really, really hard to bite your lip and be quiet when someone is just is putting you on blast. Especially if you think that person, um, if you feel like you have a position of authority over that person. I don't know if you've, a parent have ever had your kid talk back to you and, and tell you how you should live your life and what you were doing wrong. In those moments, even if you know you did something wrong, it's really hard to keep quiet and to allow that person to speak truth into your life. Especially if you feel like you have a position of authority over that person, even if you know that you're in the wrong. Yet Peter displays an amazing amount of self-restraint and humility in allowing Paul to call him out by being silent instead of puffing his chest and firing back and reveals in this moment a very important aspect of church community. In In a lot of ways, we talked about this earlier, the Bible is designed to reveal the areas in your life that need to be removed. And the problem is that this is much easier said than done. Obviously, you know that you should follow the teachings of the Bible. You know you shouldn't sin. You know you shouldn't be prideful. You know you shouldn't be jealous of other people. You know you shouldn't lie, steal, and cheat, do all these things. But it's much easier said than done. Um, It's easy for you to admit that. It's much harder for you to actually put that into practice. And I would argue that 99% of the time, having someone next to you that can keep you accountable makes this a much more feasible quest. And while I'm sure in the moment Peter wasn't super thrilled about what Paul did, I'm sure in that moment he, was, he had a flash of anger. He was, maybe his, his first initial reaction was to fight back. I'm sure he wasn't super thrilled about it. It's important to note, again, that if Peter had been left unchecked, if Paul did not call him out, if nobody called Peter out and allowed him to do what he did, right? Oh, and in front of everyone, like, sit with the disciples. But the minute Jewish people came, exclude them. And if this became a pattern in the church where Gentiles realized, I'm kind of welcome, but I'm not welcome, this seems like it's really just for Jewish people. Had that pattern of behavior gone unchecked, the church would not have survived. And even if it had, none of us would be a part of it today, or very few of us would be a part of it today if you didn't have a Jewish background. All that to say 
allowing the Bible to make changes to your life and to alter your biases and correct, um, as Pastor Chris talked about um, last week, or to bend down before the teachings of Scripture um, is very, very difficult to do. And you and I both know that the reality is it's easy for us to justify our, our own actions. It's really, really easy for you to cut yourself slack. It's really easy for us to be like, oh, well, I didn't work out today because I had all these things. Oh, I cheated because I had all of these things. There's a reason. I should have studied, I would have studied, but I didn't. No, I lied in that moment because, if you really think about it, it was really for the greater good. Oh, yeah, I didn't do that because X, Y, and Z. It's so much easier for us to cut ourselves slack and justify our own actions and really prevent ourselves from making the change that the Bible requires of us. It's so easy. We're probably the biggest inhibitor of the Bible transforming our own lives. Our ego, our sense of intelligence, where we constantly justify things. Yeah, I know I struggle with lying. I know I struggle with telling half-truth. I know I'm not always honest. But... If you look at it case by case, there was a reason for all these moments. Yeah, I know I struggle with these things. Yeah, I know I should read the Bible more. Yeah, I know I should be more respectful to my parents. Whatever change you're trying to make. But there was a reason for that. Okay, honestly, if you were there, you would understand. Put yourself in my shoes and you would see why it's hard for me to do those things. It's so, so easy for us to weasel our way out of making any sort of big change in our lives because it's about us. And we all struggle with that small sense of pride and ego that maybe I'm okay. Maybe the change that the Bible is asking me to make is really not that big of a deal. How bad is it really? I get that Jesus is asking me to pray for my enemies. I get that Jesus is asking me to be humble, to be honest, to, to not be jealous of others. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm a pretty good person. I'm okay. I don't need to make those changes. And the reality is it's way too easy for us to put ourselves to be the biggest obstacles for change in our own lives because really, it's all about us. Which brings us back to last week's message, where Pastor Chris ended last week's sermon, if you remember, and he posed a question after teaching us how to study the Bible and telling us about the benefits of studying the Bible, right? We talked about Psalms chapter 1, where you'd be like a tree planted by water, and you'll be firm in the Word, and talked about all these amazing benefits of being a student of Scripture. He posed by creating a point of tension. What about those people that claim to study the Bible, that claim to be Christians, that claim to understand biblical truths, but when you look at their lives it's hard to believe what they just said. What do we do about those people? What, what do you do about people that fall in that category? And I would argue that for anyone listening to this message, even if you don't really believe in Jesus or the Bible, the last thing you want to be is a, is a proclaimed Christian, a so-proclaimed Christian that says with their words that they believe in God and they love others, but when anyone else looks at you, they would disagree. I mean, think about it. If you just told someone, if someone just found out you're a Christian, if you just told someone that you study the Bible and you love Jesus and you go to church, what is the next worst thing you could do right after you say that? Live your life in a way that contradicts the studies of Scripture. And again, I'm arguing that for most of us, it's so easy to do that because for us, we just cut ourselves too much slack. It's too easy for us to read a passage of Scripture, understand what it's saying, and then close it and be like, that was really good. But uh, I'll try to do that. But if I don't, it's okay. It is what it is. And we talked about this in a previous sermon at our church. And for some of us, we've been telling ourselves that we're going to change for a really, really long time. Some of us have been struggling with the same things for decades and years. And a lot of it comes down to us, at least part of it comes down to us, we just keep continuing to cut ourselves more slack. I'll change more next year. I'll eventually change. It's going to happen. I'm still kind of struggling with it. But I would argue one of the problems of that, and maybe the reason you're not changing or allowing the Bible to change you as well as it could is because you're trying to handle it by yourself. 
And this study of scripture and understanding the truth, you're just keeping it to yourself, you're bottling it up, and you're just saying, I'm just going to deal with it. I will just grit my teeth and just get through this on my own. I don't need anyone to hold me accountable. It's just me and myself. Eventually, I'll just read the Bible enough and I will change. And if you've been telling yourself for the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years that same sentence, maybe there's some truth um, that needs to be spoken into your lives regarding this aspect of community. Again, none of us want to be in those shoes. None of us want to be labeled as a Christian that studies the Bible, that goes to church, that knows the Bible, yet doesn't actually live out any of its principles. None of us want to be someone that claims to love God and to love others and to pray for our enemies and to love our neighbors as ourselves, yet be the only one that thinks that about ourselves. And everyone else around us would disagree with that statement. And I would argue that the key to avoiding this life, and the reason this is so such a point of tension is because none of us want to be that, yet to a certain degree, all of us struggle with it. I feel like just being a Christian at its core, it, you recognize that you're all, always kind of a hypocrite. You're always struggling with sin, yet knowing you shouldn't. And the key to avoiding this life is being a part of a community that both holds others accountable in humility. And I would argue that the reason, probably the biggest reason why studying the Bible in community is so important and powerful is that it allows other people to speak biblical truth into your life and humble you in a way that allows you to be transformed by God. Think about the example with Peter and Paul. Imagine had Paul held his tongue, the disastrous outcomes that would have come. And it's so easy. Peter just had a revelation about why the Gentiles were important. He just talked to Cornelius, yet he turns around shortly afterwards and shuns the Gentiles. Again, it's too easy for us to be our biggest enemy and to be the biggest obstacle. But when you plug yourself into a church, into a community where we don't think of ourselves as intrinsically smarter or better than others, but we submit to each other and exalt each other in our study and living out the word of God, we create a community, an environment, a place where scripture can be studied and change can actually happen. Let me end with this verse as we close. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others as well, humbling yourself as Jesus did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we conclude this, this series on how to study the Bible, with this, I believe, super important message about, about how we can actually efficiently do this, Father, I ask that you help us do something that's so, so, so difficult, Lord. Humble us, Father, Lord. Put away our pride, our ego, our sense of self-importance, and replace that with a love for you, Lord, with a love for you, with a love for truth, with a love for our neighbors, Lord, where we can live a life where we place others before ourselves, where we place you and your truth before us and our opinions and our comfort, Father. Lord, it's so easy for us to read and study Scripture correctly um, and understand what you're trying to say and then live a life of inaction where no change occurs, where we just stay amongst ourselves, where we have an insular view of the Scripture, and, and eventually it just turns into a way where we just feed our own sinful agendas, Father. Um, if any of us here, myself included, is guilty of that, Lord, I ask for your forgiveness now, and we confess, Father, Lord. But Lord, I ask as we move forward and on the Sabbath day that we remember the importance of humbling yourself, humbling ourselves before you and before, and before this community, Father. I ask that you help us in this journey, in this quest to live like you. Praising your son, Jesus' name.